0: As you find your seats, if you'll turn with me in God's holy word to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2. As we continue our series, uh, we're in the third of four weeks, uh, the gospel according to us or the gospel according to the USA, how the American dream affects the way we understand God's word and, and maybe uh, ways that we got to wrestle with, uh, maybe ways that the American dream has led us astray. Uh, reorient ourselves and our lives to what God has for us. Today, our journey finds us uh, going back to the New Testament church in Jerusalem, the very, very uh, early New Testament church, and we're going to see the awe and wonder of what God was doing there. It's, it's a bit of a utopia. It's a bit of a, uh, uh, a model that we all think, wow, that'd be amazing and unbelievable. Um, is God calling us back there? No, no. Uh, We're called to be the church here today in 2010, right here in Maitland, Florida, uh, in Central Florida, in the USA. But at the same time, uh, all of God's truth is truth that's eternal. So when we look back, we're going to look and look to see what God was doing then to say, God, where do we have it right? Where do we have it wrong? Uh, What do you need to refine in our lives? What do you need to show us? So, interestingly, our great country... As far as I'm concerned, the greatest country in the world, our great country uh, was birthed with the proclamation that each of us have inalienable rights, uh, rights that we can't be separated from, uh, the right of life, the right of liberty, the right of the pursuit of happiness. I mean, right in the preamble of the Declaration of Independence, uh, it says these words, we hold these truths to be self-evident. I mean, these should be so very aware, according to uh, Jefferson and the signers of the Declaration of Independence, that all men, I I think about that, I think that if he wrote it today, he'd probably say that all uh, humanity, all men and women, he's certainly including the women there, all men are created equal, and they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights that among those are life, liberty, and and the pursuit of happiness. I think the immediate question that, as a Christian, uh, one who's trying to live in obedience to Jesus Christ as the Messiah and God's Son, and the question that emerges for us, the church today, is this. Is this an individual pursuit? Is this an individual pursuit of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? Or is this a communal pursuit? You see, independence without dependence on God and interdependence on one another really does seem amazingly self-serving, amazingly a recipe for narcissism, brokenness, emptiness, and loneliness. It's my belief that we have deeply seen these words reflected in the American dream That we are told that it should be our pursuit. Our pursuit of life should be one that pursues hard after life as we define it. Liberty as we define it. And happiness as we define it. And you compare that or you lay that against what God's word has and there does seem to be a great amount of disconnect. I will tell you today that I believe that as we pursue the American dream... And pursue life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness without Christ, that we will be broken. See, the Bible tells us that the good news of Jesus Christ is that, that life, liberty, and happiness are found in Jesus. That He and He alone is the, is the source of life. That Jesus came and says, I am the way, the truth, the life. That He and He alone is the pursuit of the ability to have liberty. That the, those of us by God's grace who have come to Jesus Christ and have been set free from our old nature, a nature of death, a nature of sin, a nature of depravity, that in Christ we have been made alive, that we have been made new, that we are now God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus, that liberty comes through a Savior's blood who's paid the ultimate price for our sins in face of a holy God. That's where liberty's found. The liberty is found being robed in his righteousness, that even today that we can come dragging the baggage of our still our broken lives, the baggage of our depravity. And even today, we can taste the liberty of Jesus Christ in a holy God within a holy God's eyes. It's amazing. The Bible tells us that Jesus is the only source of life, the only source of liberty, and he even tells us the only source of happiness. Probably more biblically, joy is a life pursuing hard after Him. It's a life imitating Christ as our Savior. It's a life basically this. It's a life that does this. It's a life that sets out as its primary goal to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our might, and a life to love our neighbor as ourselves. Happiness. Or joy is really found in a God who pursues us. Maybe this whole pursuit is wrong. But we got to realize and, and bask in the reality that there's a God who loves and he pursues sinners. He seeks after worshipers that worship him in spirit and truth. And again, we lay upon the American dream upon the reality of what God says is life, liberty, and happiness. We say, is there a disconnect? So let's turn our attention to God's Word again, uh, to that early church. We're going to look at Acts 2, very uh, famous passage, verses 42 through 47. Let's be mindful that God has given us this story for a reason. It's for our edification and good, uh, that it's true. It will not lead us astray. Um, it is without errors. Let's hear God's word together. Acts 2, verses 42 through 47. Again, the picture here is of the early New Testament church. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And they devoted themselves to fellowship, or this word koinonia we'll talk about in a minute, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles and all who believed they were together and they had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and their belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with gladness and generous hearts, praising God and having found favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let's pray. Father God, what an amazing picture of your church who's living out what we just sang in love with you. What an amazing picture of a church that devoted themselves to something beyond themselves. That devoted themselves to you, to your love, and to your mission. And Father, may the Holy Spirit that was upon them that led them to awe of you and love to, for you and for one another, fall afresh on us today. Because, like that early New Testament church, we too are your family. We too gather here in your name. And God, we ask that your Holy Spirit would come and speak to us, that you'd open up our ears so that we could hear. Jesus' words and Jesus' teachings, like the apostles were doing their teachings of Jesus and the resurrection. That, God, that you, because you love us and because you want us to be more conformed to your Son and you want us to live holy, obedient lives, that you would shine brightly into the darkness of our minds. That, Father, that you would reveal to us the sinful patterns of our lives and the things that we don't believe. That, Father, because you love us and because you are in all things in control, that You would lovingly take our hearts and, God, that You would break the parts of our hearts that were stony and cold and filled with unbelief, that You would give us a heart of flesh, that we would know and love You and that our lives would beat For you, that the heartbeat of our lives would be Jesus, the heartbeat of our possessions, the heartbeat of our church, the heartbeat of all that we have. Father, it should beat for you and you alone. That's the purpose of it. God, would you do that? Would you help us? And Father, would you empower our feet that we can walk in obedience to your word? And and God, I have to say thanks for loving us in the process. Thanks for the reality of the fact that we miss this so often. We miss you so often. We live in such darkness, even having such great life and light, and you still love. Thank you. But God, we don't want to be here and be the same walking out as we walked in. We want to be with you in a way that we're different. Because we're yours. Father, for some of us, that might be coarse tuning major changes. For some of us, it might be fine-tuning. But all of us need to be tuned to Jesus. Speak, Jesus, speak. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Masada is a mountain uh, in Israel. It's a famous mountain. Uh, It's a mountain where uh, when the Romans in about 70 A.D. sacked Jerusalem, it's where many fled to. It's an amazing mountain. Uh, It's it's really uh, a stronghold, Uh, that literal word, uh, rock, a stronghold. Uh, on that mountain, uh, it's, it's kind of a—it's uh, a symbol to Israel. There are those who refuse slavery uh, when the Romans were attacking and besieging and setting up ramps to finally go and take the mountain that Herod had built a palace on. They decided to take their own lives instead of submit themselves to slavery. Uh, it's a pretty amazing thing. Very close to the Dead Sea, you—you you drive to it. It's this huge massive rock and then you have Herod who really was Herod the Great the way the guy could build and all that he built on top of this huge massive rock just going into the cisterns alone where they held gallons and gallons of water for their own survival and where they stored all their food in this rock and this fortress I mean it was a pretty impressive place And you get up there and you're trying to get your bearings. You got to take a cable car all the way up there. And that alone was kind of worth the price of admission as you saw the wilderness around and you could see the Dead Sea and you're heading up and you're thinking, man, I can't imagine trying to climb this uh, by foot or trying to besiege this with an army. And as you get up there uh, and you get your bearings and you go around and there's a a model that we often see in many places that kind of depicts the entire place so I'll show you where to go and, and it's kind of barren it's kind of deserty feeling and so you sit there you're trying to look Okay, um, okay let's see here's where this is and that's where this is but what they want to start with is they want to tell you where you are first right and so they say this it was very interesting they say we are here we are here we are here now, what's so different about an American reading that? It just struck me. It's like, we are here. We, we would never, ever write something that says, we are here. What would we say? You are here. It's so true. It seems like uh, with this American dream, it seems like in this culture that we live on, we are here is never really heard. What we stress oftentimes is the individual that you are here, that you are it, that maybe even you are the center of the universe. That's what the American dream might have the propensity of telling us, that really it's all about that you are here, and now it's about your pursuit. Now it's about your pursuit for things like happiness and life and liberty letting us know that maybe each one of us is the center of the universe. The American dream has a propensity to tell us that it's about us. That really it is about us. It's about how we accumulate our wealth, how we live our jobs, how we keep our lawns, how we measure to one another. The American dream has a propensity to say it is all about us or all about me, all about you. And Christ says, no, no, no. That's not the purpose of this world. That's not the purpose of why I created you as my image. There is a God who is the center of the universe. And he says to us today, it's not just that you are here. It says this, that we are here. I mean, God is an amazing God. Yes, he loves us individually. Yes, he knows how many hairs each one of us has on our heads. And some of you, it's easier to count than others. And I'm heading that way too. You notice how, anyway, we won't go in that. And yes, He's an individual God who knows all of His sheep by name. And yes, He's an individual God who has a specific number of His family that He has died for. Yes, the blood of Jesus individually rescues each one of us. Yes, there's an amazing reality that God loves the little children. He knows them by name. But when you look at what God is doing through time and through redemptive history, through the Bible, it's never just about the individual. It's always about a people. God is creating for Himself a people, a family who love God. It's always about we when it comes to God's love. And somehow we in the American dream interpretation of that take many of the promises that God gives to his family and we have somehow grinded them through a filter that makes it all about me, me, me. That you are here. No, 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 we are here. We are here and we are the church. We are here and we're God's family. We are here and we're to be united. We are here and we're here for a purpose. And the purpose of we goes beyond the purpose of just me and you. And if it's just a group of people who all are trying to do, say, hey, it's all about me, we will never come together. We will never be what God intended us to be. We'll never be the family he intended us to be, intends us to be. We'll never be the church that God intends us to be. God has called us and reminded us that it's not that we are the center of the universe, that He is. You see, the beautiful thing about the gospel story is that Jesus has come to seek and to save us from ourselves. Jesus has come to save us not just from our, our sins, but listen to this. Jesus has come to save us from fruitless pursuits of just a life lived for ourselves. Life is meant to be so much more. We can never find life, liberty, and happiness in and of ourselves. Why? Because we were created in God's image. Because God created us for His story and His love. Listen, He never created a soul so small that the whole world could fit in it, Lewis says. So what does that mean? We can never find happiness apart from God. Augustine was right. Even way back in the 300s that... Our hearts will forever wander in the pursuit of life, liberty and happiness on our own, until they find their rest in God. You see, the American dream is a lie of life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness and being devoted to ourselves. I think of that Billy Joel song, "This is my life." You can do whatever you want to do with your life, but this is my life hands off. Leave me alone. It's amazing we even see that in the church. We come and we take vows to one another. Hey, we're going we're to seek the peace and purity of the church. We're going to do everything we can to support the church. We're going to be all about the family of God. But sometimes when our lives get outside of what God has asked us to do, and the church comes and says, hey, what about that? Hey, this is my life. Leave me. Who are you? What right do you have to question the way I'm leaving my wife? What question do you have the way I'm not supporting my children? What right do you have? Because we've bought into, even the church, sometimes the reality of the American dream that tells us that the pursuit of life is an individual pursuit. And that's not true. We've been called together. You see, the lie of the American dream leads to the loneliness of a life of solitude. And God has never intended that for us. I mean, history begins. God makes it very, very clear that we are not to live lives alone independently from one another. When God created everything, he looked at all the things he created. He said, man, that's good. I I did good work. Check out the mountains. Look, Look at the heavens. Look at the way the ocean rolls. Look at everything that's good. There's something that's really good. That's that I made God or man in my own image. I made man to have a relationship with me. But you know the one thing in creation, in paradise, before sin even entered the picture, that wasn't good? Loneliness. Loneliness. The man would be alone. So he created woman. Another image bearer. We don't get the story of God. Listen, we don't get the story of God until we get the story of God in community. And in a way that we're wrestling with God together, where we're seeing Him together, where we're living life together. We were created for community by a God who is in community. And what in the world does that mean? I think the reason we have community is because it's an attribute of God. There's one true living God who has three persons in this one essence, this one being. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and yet certainly a ministry. But when my doorbell rang yesterday and there was a gentleman standing there who was going to tell me about Jesus, not a part of that community, not a part of that eternal community, I would say, you don't understand God. The God of the Bible is a God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He lives in community. And he's made us in his image to live in community as well. So if we devote ourselves just to our own lives, look what happened in the early church. They were devoting themselves to something beyond themselves. But oftentimes, the American dream says, just devote all your energy, all your resources, all your best thinking to take care of you. God loves us individually, but sees us in the community. What did the New Testament church do that was different than the American dream tells us to do? Well, they devoted themselves to something beyond themselves that included this, the apostles' teaching. They know they knew that they were, had the propensity to wander like we do, so they wanted to devote themselves to God's Word. What does God say? We submit our lives to Him. He created us for His purpose. He needs to speak to us. We need to submit. They, de- they devoted themselves to fellowship. It's an interesting word, koinonia. You've maybe heard it. It's a Greek word, kind of a compound word, having all things in common, great purpose. It's, it's more than just Fellowship. They, they committed, listen, the early New Testament church committed themselves. They committed, it was a priority. It was a priority for them to be in community. They, they devoted themselves to it. I guess you could picture this picture in their life. Maybe they had to juggle some things in life too, just like you and I have to juggle things. And maybe sometimes we see that church is something we juggle. And maybe if it's something we juggle, if life gets too full, we can drop that. Well, you see, they, they devoted themselves to fellowship. It, it was the fact that they were all in. That they believed it was not something that they juggled along with everything else in their lives. That fellowship was something that God called them to. They had to do life together. They couldn't understand God fully without it. That God called them to love Him and love each other. They devoted themselves to fellowship. Most churches today devote themselves to at least a fellowship hall. A place of fellowship. But maybe not even lives of fellowship. You know the hardest thing about preaching the sermon? <laughs> there's a lot of hard things. We you know the hardest thing? I'm trying to preach sermons more in community. The way I do that is after I study, I, I grab some folks and say, here's what God's telling me in my heart. What do you think? And it's been great because I've realized if I just spend all my time in my study, and I come on Sunday and I preach to you, maybe there, there's a community of voices that I need to hear that can really help me. And I think it's helped tremendously. But you know the reality is, is I'm like, you know, I'm talking about the American dream. We're going to talk about the need for community, but you know what scares me? Are we really modeling it? What do I do? Because I feel kind of hypocritical. I feel like the Spirit of God is stirring me to say that we gotta live in life community a lot better than we do. I just I love walking into church today and having some senior saints say, Man, supper clubs were awesome. We had a phenomenal time. But that's not enough. Equipping centers, not enough. And I I promise you, as leadership of the church, we're wrestling, saying, God, we believe you're calling us to a greater level of community, living life together. What does that look like? Because this is what was happening in the early church. They devoted themselves to community. So pray for us, because we don't have all the answers. And I, I do believe that this church is kind of an unusual size where you can come and feel close but not really close and it's an interesting church where it seems like you can come and find family but drift from family so how do we do community together how does that look like what does it look like for us what does it look like for you individually well they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching they devoted themselves to fellowship they devoted themselves to the sacrament the lord's supper They also included the sacrament. Um, They also had meals together in each other's houses. They had true and real fellowship. They devoted themselves to prayer. They were on mission for God. Their lives had been changed. They were so amazed with a God who loves them. They were so consumed with the fact that God had a plan for them, not just individually but corporately, that God was going to love them in a way that would change their whole life, that would change the whole church, that would change the whole world, and the awe that filled them with the reality that God had created called into that. Everything else just kind of faded away. It didn't nearly matter as much. The lie of the American dream was not appealing that they find life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness individually. They realized that life, liberty, and happiness pursued them in Jesus. And now they have the reality to live together in that love and that reality and show the world what it was all about. How many of you have ever been on a mission trip? We just had two groups come back. It's amazing how many hands went up. You know what I'm talking about because probably the closest we get as a church is this, on a mission trip. When we go on a mission trip together and we realize that God has called us together in community, that God has called us to have a purpose beyond ourselves. And really the challenge for us is to kind of capture that in a, in a weekly setting at a church, kind of like a camp setting that we have. We don't just live on this high for you get, get our community fixed once or twice a year. That we become Orangewood, that we become a place that's passionate, that we need to devote ourselves to one another. We need to devote ourselves to a God who loves us and loving one another. The American dream also has a lie of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness be devoted to our possessions. Hey, what is your number? What's your number? Now, many of you start saying four oh seven nine two zero, but some of you who have been watching golf lately know that there's a commercial out there that will ask you all the time, what is your number? You know what they're asking? Well, what's your number for retirement? What, what's your goal for retirement? And at the end of their, their, the question and the pursuit is this, it says financial freedom. Financial freedom will come for you to identify what your number is for you, for your needs, for your family, for you to pursue so that someday you will have what you need to have the good life or whatever, retirement. It's I mean, it's interesting. It really that 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 sells to us because we've been indoctrinated in that. That sells to us. I mean, that makes sense to us. And we say, well, of course, we got to save for a rainy day, and of course, we got to look out for ourselves. I mean, who else is going to? Of course, I mean, we got we got to do these things. So, what is our number? And let's live our lives in pursuit of a number. Let's live our lives in the pursuit of someday we will get to the point where our 401k will have a number that we said we've obtained it. Do you think that we need something better to live for? Do you think that we need something bigger than just the pursuit of our stuff and our possessions that will give us enough security and enough identity and enough joy and enough life? God is saying it's repugnant. I've created you for so much more than a pursuit of a 401k number. I've, I've created you to give you life, liberty, and happiness in Jesus. I've created you for community. And now, if you love me and you love your neighbor as yourself, your possessions will be held very loosely. You want to know how our possessions mean to us, myself included? If you want to call me a hypocrite, you don't know half the truth. But this early church, they they just had the Spirit of God on them. And they were so in mission that that their possessions weren't their identity. Their possessions weren't their security. Their possessions weren't even their own. And they just decided that they were going to be in community. And if someone had a need that God had placed things in their life to help, and they decided, you know, it would be really amazing because they were filled with awe and the Holy Spirit and what Jesus was doing. They say, man, we got a need over here. And I I, I think that God is calling me to meet that. I will go and I'll sell my number. I'll go and I'll rearrange my number. I'll go and have something bigger than my number. I'm going to give it to someone who needs it now. Maybe loving my neighbor as myself has nothing to do with my number. Maybe it has everything to do with trusting God with everything he's provided. And trusting that he'll provide tomorrow. And maybe he's calling us to invest in something beyond ourselves. And maybe he wants to change the world through a church like this who says we want to be devoted to God and we want to be devoted to one another and we want to be so in love with him that whatever we have, we just just hold it like this because we've come to the reality that he owns it anyway. We are not going to let this define us. We're not going to let this become about us. Individually to become about us, corporately, for his mission. The American dream tells us a lie that the pursuit of happiness could be devoted in our possessions. There's an emptiness of our possessions, and you know it. There's a powerlessness of holding tightly to our possessions. It's powerless. They they become idols. But man, is there a powerfulness. That few of us have tasted, and I'm not saying I'm one of them yet, but powerfulness of possessions held loosely. The New Testament church were filled with awe of something beyond themselves. And our mission for God. How is it with us? Are we filled with awe of what God has done? Are we devoting ourselves to Him. Into one another. In closing, I want you to picture your life as a bucket. Picture your life as a bucket. What's in, your, what's in your bucket? What's in there? I mean, we all have some similar things in our bucket. But even the things like your family and your jobs and, and your children, I mean, well, what's, what's the purpose of them in your bucket? And how much room is there in your bucket for God? And how much room is there in your bucket right now, listen, right now for community? If, if God were calling you today to say, I want you to devote your life to me, and I want you to devote your life to this church and community, I, I want you to really live in a way that you're breaking bread together, that you're being here and worshiping together, celebrating the sacraments together, that you're praying together. Is there room in your bucket? Because I think that that's the reality of our lives, is our buckets are so full. I mean, we, we live in our lives, and our buckets are splashing all over the place. I mean, we're trying to carry it on. It's heavy, and we got all this stuff in there, and it's spilling, and we're worried about the spill. I think that today God is calling us to examine the bucket. And I I think what needs to happen is for us to have a bucket filled with what he wants us to fill it with, I think we're going to have to tip it over and make some room. And that's just going to be examine ourselves. Like, you know, God, what is my number? Am I living for my number or am I living for the name of Jesus? God, what's the point of my job? What's the point of it? Is, it? is it just for me and security and name? Or is the point that I'm an ambassador of Christ? Is the point that the, the job that's in this bucket's for Jesus? What's in your bucket? This word koinonia, this fellowship word, it's an interesting word because Paul uses it to say that we have koinonia With Jesus. Listen, it says that we have koinonia. We have fellowship with Jesus in his blood and in his body. There's a fellowship. You know what also says? It says this. It's interesting. It says that we have the privilege of giving koinonia to others. An offering that was taken, an offering that was taken in the early church was called koinonia. Fellowship. We're in together. We love. And so at the close of the sermon, as we take our tithes and offerings, let me maybe even have a different spin on that. Do you have fellowship with God? Is there koinonia in your life because of the blood and righteousness of Christ? Rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. If you're here today and you don't have koinonia, you don't have fellowship with God in Christ, listen, don't leave without it. It's, it's life-giving. That's where life, liberty, and happiness is all wrapped up in Him, in Him alone. That is fellowship that sets us free. Come and acknowledge sinful behaviors and embrace Christ freely as Savior today. But for those of us who are His, for those of us who have been set free, for those of us who examine our buckets, can we offer a koinonia to those in need and a fellowship and say, God, we trust You. We don't do this because we want You to love us because You do love us. And we're going to respond in kind. So as the ushers come forward, let me pray for us. Father, I wish you'd quit asking me to preach hard sermons. Because it really is difficult to stand before my family here at Orangewood sometimes. And to tell them that they've bought into a lie when I have too. And Father, in an amazing way, we want to spin Christianity to fit what we really want it to be. We, we want Christianity to contain the things that we'd like about the American dream. But Father, your son Jesus came to us and he says, if you want life, you're just going to have to deny yourself. I mean, you're just gonna have to, if you're trying to find your life, you're gonna have to lose it. And when you lose it, you find it in Christ. And so, God, that's boldness. That that's that's radical. And that's just Jesus. Father, I pray for the one, the woman, the man, the child here today that doesn't know Jesus as Savior. Holy Ghost, don't let them go out of here without knowing a God who loves them. And he, Gives them, offers to them by his grace in Christ Jesus, life and liberty and joy today. Make them a new creation. May they confess their sins and embrace Jesus as their Savior and be welcome into the family. Father, for the rest of us, may we examine our buckets. It's going to be hard. Would you give us holy courage this week to think what's in my bucket? What needs to leave my bucket? What's filling up my bucket that doesn't have the aroma of Christ? Give us the courage to pour it out. Father, do what you did to the early church. Fill us with your spirit. Pour it upon us. Give us great joy. God, I pray that you give wisdom to me and to the leaders and to each one, that, God, we would devote ourselves to you. We would devote ourselves to one another. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.